0: This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians, we're going to be starting in chapter 1, in verse 3. to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in that every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice.
1: Good morning, church. So many of you know that I love to build things, woodworking, projects, renovation. I love it all. Um, And recently, we were able to move into a new home that I now have a dedicated workshop space, which has been amazing. And more space means... More projects, for sure. Yes, that. Uh, but also, more tools to fill said space. Okay, I'm, apparently I'm the only one excited about that. But yes, so what's interesting is that I've bought several new new tools since being in the workshop space, and I've told Angela on two different occasions Man, how did I live without this tool? I've used it so many times, and yet I renovated an entire house. I've built tables and furniture. I mean, I've done all of these things and never was like, Man, I really need this tool to do that. And yet, now having it, I understand how much better it is to have these tools to accomplish things more efficiently and better. And this morning... I would like to really help us to consider what tools we have in our tool belt to accomplish gospel ministry. Because God has called us to gospel ministry. God has called us to a very specific mission to make disciples for his glory through the power of the gospel. That is what God has called the Church of Jesus Christ to. And he's given us tools to do that with effectiveness. And having the right tool for the right job makes all the difference in the world. So today we'd like to explore what one of the, those right tools is, and that's Christian partnership. Christian partnership. The reality is this. This is our big idea for this morning. I am called to Christian partnership. You are called to Christian partnership. We are all called to Christian partnership. But here's the reality. We don't do Christian partnership super well as believers. We tend to fall into one of two ditches. There's the ditch of, I never partner with anyone because they think differently than I do about this thing, whatever that is, or we fall in the other ditch that says, you know what, we can partner with anybody, doesn't matter what they think about anything, let's just all love one another and partner together. We tend to fall in one of these two ditches, and what I want to tell you this morning is that we should be somewhere in the middle of those two ditches, not on the right or the left, which is so often true as we talk about where we should be in Christianity in general, not on one side or the other, but often somewhere in the middle. So I'm called to Christian partnership. So two truths about Christian partnership that I think will help us unpack this together. The first is this. Christian partnership is necessary. Christian partnership is necessary. Look back at Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Philippians 1, 3. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Paul's in jail at this point because of his ministry of the gospel. It has landed him in prison, and that is where he is writing this from, and he says this, I thank my God in all, rem- in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel From the first day until now. Why is Paul thankful in verse three? It's because of verse five, because of the partnership in the gospel that the Philippians have shared with him. There's thankfulness he has for them, there's joy in this Christian partnership. Verse seven, as we look on, says, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. The Philippian church is partakers in grace because of the defense and the confirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is partnership in motion. This is the benefit to the Philippian church, and Paul's acknowledging the benefit to him and his own ministry. The reality is we accomplish a whole lot more together than we ever could separately. Look at verses 12 through 14 again. Verse 12 says this, I want you to know, brothers, That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So your support of me, even though it's landed me in prison, has really served for the advance of the gospel. Your partnership is a part of this. Then verse 13, so that it has become known throughout that the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the partnership of the Philippian church has helped... Paul, in his missionary journey, it's helped made Christ known in the prison, so much so that as he's shared and talked about it with the other believers who are also in prison, now they are bold to preach the gospel with others. So the partnership of the Philippian church is now part of the partnership of these believers in jail, and the gospel is going forth more forcefully better in both instances because of the partnership of believers around the gospel. The gospel bears more fruit together than it does apart. Paul knew this in 2 Timothy. In the conclusion, he says this... Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He knew that there were people that were useful for him in ministry. We saw this in Acts 20, which is the last place I preached in the book of Acts, with a group of believers who were there who were bringing gifts to go to the Jerusalem church, but were also going around with Paul and ministering with him because his ministry required other partnerships to be most effective. The reality is we accomplish a whole lot more together than we do apart. That's why Christian partnership is necessary. You can't do everything. In fact, you're not even called to do everything. Remember the body of Christ illustration from 1 Corinthians 12? God has given us all varying gifts within the body of Christ to use because he knows we're not all eyes, we're not all ears, we're not all noses. We all need each other to, for the gospel to be going forward in the most effective way that it can. Gospel partnership is necessary. It's understood in the New Testament. That's true of the local church. It's true in the universal church, so all believers on the planet. Do you know that there are people in the world that are unreached with the gospel? We call them unreached people groups. People who have never had somebody come into their village or town and share the truth of Jesus Christ. They don't have a Bible in their language. These people need the gospel And they need people to go and share the gospel with them. But they don't need all of us to go, because if we all go, then who's sharing the gospel with the people left here? It needs to be a partnership. This is Linnea's sister. She is ministering to an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea. Her and her husband, they raise financial support to do ministry here to preach the gospel to them. They're working on translating the New Testament and the whole Bible for them in their language. And they can't do that apart on their own. They need financial supporters. They need people to be praying for them. They have a missions organization that is training and equipping them and giving them resources as they need them. Christian partnership in this is necessary for them to be able to reach an unreached people group. This is what good Christian partnership can look like. They could do it alone. They could have flown to Papua New Guinea and just figured it out and live on the land and all of those types of things, but they're going to get a whole lot more accomplished with Christian partners alongside them than they would on their own. We accomplish more together than we do separately so who are your Christian partners? Who might God be calling you to partner with that you might be resisting right now? I'm not so sure about that for this. this We can caveat all the things of why we shouldn't partner with people. What's holding you back from partnering with believers more? All right, so the first truth, Christian partnership is necessary. The second truth is this, Christian partnership is nuanced. Christian partnership is nuance. To do Christian partnership with effectiveness, it takes nuance. And nuance is really hard work. To not just wholesale accept something or wholesale throw something out, to actually do the hard work of thinking through things in a biblical way takes a lot of time, effort, and energy, and it's why we struggle to do it. Also, we live in a culture that doesn't nuance anything. Twitter point in case we limit characters we we encourage people not to nuance sound bites and everything is what we want to grab it is the culture that we live in we take in we breathe in day in and day out we don't want to do that hard work cancel culture is born out of an inability to nuance This person said this one thing, this one time, and it made me mad. I don't care why they said it or if they've grown since they said it or any of that. I don't care. We're just going to cancel them. We don't want to hear about them anymore. But here's the reality. We say, yes, the world is very bad about that. And yet Christians were like the king of cancel culture before it was ever a cultural thing. For decades and decades, Christians have been separating from anybody who has a different theological point or a different position. We've been doing this in churches for decades and decades and decades, and there are times when that is good and right, and there are a lot of times when it is not good and right. Do you know that in the U.S. alone, there are over 200 denominations, which is sad. It's even sadder when you understand that there are over 45,000 denominations worldwide. 45,000 denominations. That doesn't scream to us that we are seeking unity <laughs> in theological matters or any of these things. We find a whole lot of reasons not to agree, not to work together, and we struggle to find reasons to agree and work together. And look, sometimes we should disagree. Sometimes we should depart. But other times we shouldn't. And here's where nuance comes into play. That may be with the same group of people, depending on what we're doing and what we're working with. That it might be okay to partner on this thing with them, but not this thing. And that takes a lot of work, a lot of thought, a lot of prayer to do that well. It takes constant work. Not all Christian partnership is the same. The level of Christian, a level of partnership will drive the level of agreement necessary. The level of partnership will drive the level of agreement necessary. What do I mean? If we're going to plant a church, we're probably going to need to agree on a whole lot of things to plant a church. If we're going to do an event where we're going to proclaim the truth of the gospel, and that is our entire aim is to be an evangelistic event where we preach the gospel, then we need to agree on the gospel. And then there's a whole lot of gray area in, in between on what other partnerships look like. I'm not saying we'll partner with anyone on anything, but I think there's a whole lot more to consider here than we do Can I stand in this pulpit and quote you, somebody from a book that I don't agree with everything they say? I hope so because I don't agree with myself from 10 years ago on some issues. Can I use a book in small group that there's a section that I might not agree with in that book? Can I sing a song written by somebody I don't agree with? Can I partner with other churches that we disagree with on certain theological issues? These are all questions that we need to think about and explore and press into. So let's look at three principles for nuancing Christian partnership. Three principles for nuancing Christian partnership. The first is this. Embrace truth. Embrace truth. God calls us to embrace truth. Let me prove it to you. Flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Just probably one page over in your Bible. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Paul's wrapping up his letter to the Philippians, and he says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whatever is true. What's true is true because it's true. Amen? Amen. No matter who said it, it's true because it's true. Because God defines what is true, people do not define what is true. Paul tells us to think on what is true, whatever is true. See, so often we make Men, the author of truth, by saying, I can't say that or participate in that in any way, shape, or form because that person doesn't think the way I do. So what they say can't be meaningful. But the reality is, if what they say is true, it is meaningful because God is the definer of truth, God and God alone. And so what we do when we actually don't consider things that are true because of the source is we devalue the wisdom, we devalue the sovereignty of God and his ability to use broken people to communicate truth. Paul did it. Let me prove it to you. Acts 17, verse 28. We were there, I don't know, a while ago at this point. (laughs) For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. What does Paul do there? He quotes pagan poets to make his point about the gospel. Why? Because what they said is true. They're pagans. He makes that very clear. This is Paul in the Areopagus Contextualizing the truth of what is happening to proclaim the gospel with effectiveness to the people that he is proclaiming it to. And these are pagans. And this gets recorded in scripture. And these are pagan poets that he's quoting. He does the same thing in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil, beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That's unfortunate to have that recorded in Scripture forever. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. This complete other religion this prophet from that religion says something that Paul says yes that is true and since that is true here's how you should respond he's acknowledging that God is the author of truth and it is okay to use things that come from sources that we don't necessarily agree with if they speak truth now how do we evaluate truth we evaluate truth against this book God says what is true. He defines what is true. He has made that very clear here in his word. But regardless of motives, truth is truth. Look back at our passage in Philippians 1. Look at Philippians 1 verse 15. Paul hammers this point further. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're trying to hurt Paul with proclaiming the gospel. That They didn't know Paul very well. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He doesn't care why they were preaching the gospel. He doesn't care they were preaching the gospel trying to hurt him because of envy and rivalry. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Paul had given his life to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to join him in that, for whatever reason, he doesn't care. Christ is getting proclaimed. So if Paul says that, where are we in that? He's praising God that the gospel is going forward regardless of the source. Look, men are fallen. We get things wrong all the time. But we aren't the standard for truth. God is. And if you think that you have everything right theologically right now in this moment, that's pride, because you don't, because you can't get to the end of this book. It's not possible this side of heaven. It has more to teach you. It has more to grow you in. And so if you're sitting here saying, I've got everything right, and I'm I'm vetting everyone in the world against what I believe and think, that is an extreme source of pride for you. Humble yourself before a mighty God, because he's way bigger. You can't get to the end of him. So Makari has gotten really into the Kids Baking Championship on the Food Network. And so naturally, that has made her want to venture more into baking, which is amazing most of the time. (laughs) Because she's learning to bake. So a couple weeks ago, um, she tried to make a dessert, a cake, and she may have misread teaspoon and tablespoon, And it was salt. Uh, So two tablespoons of salt is much more than a recipe requires. Two teaspoons of salt is much closer to where we should be. Thankfully, we caught it before the cake actually got baked, and we just made new flour and all of that. But what a terrible fail that would have been. It would have been one of those dad moments where you're like, oh, it's delicious, but it's salty as all get out. Because what's true is two tablespoons of salt in a cake tastes bad, right? That's true. I don't care what the person who wrote the recipe, I don't care what they think, I don't care what they believe about anything. What they knew is two teaspoons of salt was right for that recipe, two tablespoons was not. And I think we could all universally agree, even if you know nothing about baking, just trust me, two tablespoons of salt is way too much in a cake. Now, I know this is... Silly compared to talking about more important truths. Although in my house, cake is very serious business. But the, po- the point holds, truth is not relative, church. Truth is absolute. And the world around you bombards you each and every day with the fact that truth is relative. It's assumed in the world around you. People believe what's true for you may not be true for me, and that's okay. Okay. It's not. God defines what is true. We do not. There is such thing as an absolute truth. We need to stand on that truth. Look, God can use flawed humans with flawed theology to communicate truth. Do you believe that? Because my God is that big. I mean, look at the Bible. The Bible is written by a bunch of dudes who were train wrecks. I mean, these guys didn't have it together. In fact, I mean, think of Peter. He gets blasted in the book of Galatians by Paul for some false theological views and goes on to write a couple different books in the Bible. Like Peter had major theological issues all throughout. And he was allowed to write scripture. God doesn't write things in such a way because he needs us to protect his truth, that he needs us to be something. He can use flawed men, he can use whatever he wants. He doesn't need men at all to communicate his truth. But do you really believe that in your heart of hearts, that God can use flawed men? to communicate truth. God can use people with differing theology to still accomplish his purposes. Do you feel like you need to be the protector of God and the protector of his truth? Newsflash, he's been doing just fine on his own for a few thousand years and all of eternity. We need a bigger view of God we need to embrace this truth. So three principles for nuancing Christian partnership, embrace truth. The second is this, evaluate doctrine, evaluate doctrine. So before you all start lynching me, let's continue to nuance this point that I'm talking about because this, we are nuancing. So if you know me, if you've spent any time with me, you know that I love theology, like love theology. We could sit around and we can dissect theology and talk about the nuance of this and that. That is my jam. So much so, I won the Systematic Theology Award in seminary. And I don't say that to pat myself on the back. I say say that to illustrate to you how much I love the truth of the Word of God, okay? So we're there. But something I had to learn very early on, as theology started to become a weapon for me, is not all doctrine is created equal. Different doctrines carry different weight. Look, all doctrine is important. I'm not saying things are more or less important. That's not what I said. Say that's not what he said. I'm not saying they have more or less value, but what I am saying is not all doctrine impacts other doctrines in the same way. So what in the world does that look like? Well, let's dive into a couple things here to hopefully help you understand what I mean when I say not all doctrine is created equal. So Eric Theens, in his book, Life's Biggest Questions, gives eight helpful criteria for ranking doctrine. Because what what this means is that we have to do the hard work of saying, where does this doctrine actually fit in terms of my thinking? Do I want to fight over this doctrine? Do I want to throw down over this doctrine? Should I just let this not be that big of a deal? How do I know? Well, I know by doing the hard work of evaluating and ranking doctrine. And here's eight helpful criteria. We'll walk through them hopefully somewhat quickly, maybe more quickly than I did in the nine o'clock service. So you're not here so long. All right. uh, Number one, biblical clarity. How clear is this in the word of God? Straightforward. Straightforward. Relevance to the character of God. Does this doctrine, if I mess with it, change the character and nature of God? If it does, then it's really important. So open theism is the doctrine that God can't know the future. That's very problematic in my understanding both of Scripture and how God thinks and functions. So that messes with the doctrine of the character of God. So we need to go hard at refuting that. Number three, the relevance to the essence of the gospel. Does it actually mess with the gospel itself? If Jesus isn't fully God and fully man, the gospel has problems. That's not okay. We need to be thinking about that as we're ranking doctrine. Number four, biblical frequency and significance. How often does Scripture talk about it? And what weight does Scripture place upon it? The more often Scripture talks about something, the higher that it should rank. The clearer it is, the higher it should rank. See where we're going with this. Number five, effect on other doctrines. Some doctrines pull a lot of strings. There's a lot of stuff attached to it. If I pull on the sovereignty of God, that impacts virtually every other doctrine. If I pull on, say, the end times down here, it pulls on less doctrines. I can have a different view of end times and not pull on as many other things. So this helps us as we think about ranking doctrine. Again, not less or more important, just different. Consensus among Christians, past and present. Church history isn't everything, but it's also not nothing. Nothing. There are councils that we can go back to and see what they talked about and debated about and got clarity on. We can see what the church has believed throughout its history. Those things have value and should carry weight. Especially as Western Americans, we think we're so much smarter than everybody else for all of eternity. Newsflash, we're not. We're probably dumber because we just Google it all the time instead of actually having to figure it out. That's number six. Number seven, effect on personal and church life. How much is this actually going to impact me tomorrow as I go to my job? That plays on how significant it is. Number eight, current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of scripture. If culture is really pressing me to deny something, that probably means it has some good value because it's pressing up against something culture doesn't like, which, by the way, the Bible says will happen. So, there's eight criteria. So, what in the world do I do with all of that? Okay, well, what's this look like? So, here at Redemption, we teach it this way. We have four levels of doctrine that we talk about, and I'm going to walk you through those now. So, the first level is this. It's essential. It's essential. What is essential? Essentials are things that you either must affirm to be a Christian or that you must never deny to be a believer in Christ. So new believers may not necessarily understand everything. They may not necessarily understand the virgin birth, and they may pass away before that understanding ever comes, but they can't ever deny it either. Because if you start denying the virgin birth, you start denying the deity of Christ, all of these things, you start to get into heresy, and you start to question your salvation in general. A perfect example of what I'm saying is the thief on the cross. So what did the thief on the cross know? Not a whole lot in terms of theology. And he was dead real quick after he accepted Christ. But we also know that he didn't deny any of those things either. So he's a good example. He was saved clearly in scripture, but he didn't necessarily know all of the nuances of some of the deep truths that we should never deny. The inerrancy of scripture we should never deny. It impacts everything. So essentials are matters to divide over because we believe that they are issues fundamental to a person's salvation. Okay, fundamental to a person's salvation. We're talking about believer versus non-believer if we deny these truths. Big deal. We throw down over essentials. We die over essentials. We fight over essentials. Okay? Second, primary doctrine. Primary doctrines are doctrines that are extremely clear in Scripture and have a large impact on many other Scriptures. So these are going to meet most, if not all, of those eight criteria that we went through are going to be high-ranking to get to primary doctrine. Primary doctrines are matters to divide over because you're just going to butt heads about a whole lot of things. So... The perseverance of the saints or eternal security is something that we hold near and dear here at Redemption. And you can come to Redemption and you can believe something differently, but you're going to hear on a regular basis from this pulpit us preaching the truth of that theology. In fact, it undergirds all of our discipleship philosophy. You can't be gospel-centered and keep taking people back to the truth of who Christ is and what he's done if you're having to earn your salvation if you're not eternally secure in him. So you're probably not going to be super comfortable around here for long. So there are other churches that believe differently about that. Now, again, let's clarify, that doesn't mean they're not a believer. I don't believe that the doctrine of eternal security is necessary for salvation. Now it's super high in terms of doctrine. It's going to impact a whole lot of things. But I I believe that there are genuine believers who believe believe differently about eternal security. All right. Uh, Partnerships with other believers who differ in primary doctrine isn't wrong, but it's going to require a whole lot of discernment. Uh, This little book here called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. If you want to dive more into this concept, a lot of this comes out of both a class I took in seminary and a combination of this book. Uh, it's very helpful. Um, so I will quote it several times today, but you can check that out if you're interested in that. The, the first quote is right now by second rate doctrines and this is what he calls primary doctrines we have slightly different language i mean that middle that middle body of christian doctrines that make a noticeable difference in how we understand and articulate the gospel but they are often important enough to justify divisions at the level of denominations church or ministry so these are the lines in which denominations should be drawn around these issues of primary doctrine all right third level. Secondary doctrine. Definition. Secondary doctrines are doctrines that are less clear in Scripture and have a small impact on other doctrines. Less clear in Scripture, small impact on other doctrines. These are doctrines that we hold with an open hand. That does not make them unimportant. It does not mean that I shouldn't pursue the word of God in trying to understand them more fully and getting a deeper glimpse of who God is. It just means they're less clear and we shouldn't fight about them as much because they don't impact as many other things. Secondary doctrines are matters that should not cause division. This may shock some of you and may make some of you uncomfortable, but there are three pastors on staff currently at Redemption Bible Church, and there are some secondary doctrinal issues that we don't agree about. So if we don't agree, I can guarantee you there are those out here in this congregation that don't agree about some of those things. And guess what? I'm good with that. Because this is an opportunity for us to press each other into the Word, and iron sharpens iron. And we help explore and understand the word of God more deeply. Because I have to know. I have to know I don't have it all together. I have to know I don't have it all right. Now, there are some, there are some doctrines that I better have right because I've staked my life on it. And there are some other doctrines that that's not true about. And I, I'm not changing my position on the fact that Jesus was the son of God that he was fully God and fully man. That's not moving. That's not what we're talking about. But when we start talking about the doctrine of the end times, for instance, depending on the day and which passage we look at, you might we might be able to have different conversations on different things. Again, that doesn't mean that it's unimportant. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to study and press in and, sh- and know where I stand, because I know where I stand on these issues. But it means that if I'm really going to be under the authority of this book, that it better be able to lay me bare and change my mind on some things. Otherwise, I am the authority of truth in my life. And here's the reality. We will not get to the end of this book, this side of heaven. It won't happen. You have things to learn. You have things to grow in. And so for us to sit there and say there are no doctrines that we need refining on, there are no things that we need to study more, that's just arrogance and pride. There are issues that we need to grow in. And we should have a place where we can dialogue about those things, press each other deeper into the Word of God. All right essential primary secondary the fourth category is this preference preference preferences are matters that the bible speak very little about if at all these are issues that pertain to what i like or dislike what the bible is unclear or silent on we should never divide over preference never ever 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 should we divide over preference is that clear enough Issues of preference are like musical style. It looks different now in our own church than it did 10 years ago. And that's okay. And in 10 years, it'll probably look a little different then. And that's good and right Style of music is about contextualizing. I was just on a trip to Egypt and guess what? Their Sunday morning worship services look a whole lot different than ours do. And that's good for them because if we came over with our Western style of music and tried to play it in a Middle Eastern setting, they would be like, what in the world are you doing? It doesn't make sense to them. It's not something that's going to relate to them. And that's okay. We're not talking about the truth of what we're singing. We're talking about the style in which we're doing it. The Bible speaks very little about that. How about carpet color or lights or paint colors? Or you hear horror stories of churches splitting over things like that. That's just dumb. Just be honest about it. The Bible doesn't say anything about any of those things. Whether we should dim lights or not in a service, like, who cares? in terms of fighting and dividing. These are issues of preference. We should seek to humble ourselves and look to the interest of other people in these areas. Humility. Gavin Ortland said this, Theological wisdom does not consider doctrines in the abstract concerned mainly with technical correctness. Instead, it considers doctrines in their real life, influence on actual people and situations and churches. We don't pursue the pursuit of doctrine to just know more stuff. We pursue doctrine to actually change the way we live and have it impact us. And too often we make it this intellectual exercise and we divorce it from the fact that these letters, this book was written to people who were struggling with real things. And we can apply that to our lives because we're people struggling with real things who need the truth of God to penetrate our hearts deeper. We all see life through a lens. Do you know that? You see life through a lens. And we all like to believe that we approach the Word of God without any bias and we see it all 100% clearly. And I'm here to tell you that that's just not true. You have lived a life, you are living a life, you know people. And doctrinal issues almost always stem from relational issues. I've been doing ministry now for nearing 15 years, and I can tell you that the more often I sit with people in the counseling room or across the table from them, I can tell you that when they're struggling with a doctrine, it's usually, who do you know struggling with that issue? We often divorce doctrine apart from real life as if it's just this thing. But we need to seek to remove our bias and nuance theology. It's why we should be studying theology in community, It's why we should have believers that we can bounce things off of so that when something starts to kind of become heresy, we can go, eh, let's rein that in. But the number one most essential element to all theological study is this. It's humility. It's humility. Augustine said this about doing doctrine in the way of Christ. He said this. He said, the way way is first humility, second humility, Third, humility, and however often you should ask me, I would say the same, not because there are no other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not proceed and accompany and follow every good work we do, and if it is not set before us to look upon and beside us to lean upon and behind us to fence us in, pride will wrest from our hand any good deed we do while we are in the very act of taking pleasure in it. Do we approach the word of God with humility? Do we nuance theology knowing that we don't know it all? What doctrines might you be holding more highly than you ought to? Or what doctrine might you be holding not highly enough? Because I can tell you, in each one of us, some of the, there's something in each one of those questions. All right, three principles for nuancing Christian partnership. Embrace truth, evaluate doctrine. And the third is this, encourage unity, encourage unity. I'm running short on time. I can tell you this, God wants unity more than division in his church. I was going to take you to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, which Jamie takes us to often, where it says, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What is that? It's unity and theology. Those are all theological concepts that Paul wants us to have unity. Doctrine is at stake in, in Philippians or Ephesians four. But I'm not saying unity at all costs. I'm also not saying truth all the time and in every way at all costs. There's a balance. Gavin Ortland last quote from him this morning, said this, the divisiveness surrounding a doctrine involves not merely its content, but also the attitude with which it is held. Not all partnership requires the same level of agreement. This is the reality. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I was just in Egypt uh, a few weeks ago, and the Egyptian church... um, often has a belief in infant baptism. I've studied infant baptism, studied the case for it. I personally am not compelled to believe in infant baptism based on the biblical case. But here's what I also know. In Egypt, there's a law on the books. It's not currently being enforced under this administration, but could be at any point, that if you do not baptize your infant by the age of six, that they can declare them to be Muslim, That kind of impacts what you might think about infant baptism in terms of a practical sense in baptizing them into the Christian church. Again, I still don't agree with it. I still don't think it's a biblical argument, but I do understand the practical argument that they are getting themselves in because of the context with which they are ministering. This is why I say it takes a whole lot of nuance to to do theology well. We don't have that same stipulation in the Christian church in America. So it's going to be a different conversation than when I'm talking to Egyptian brothers and sisters in Egypt. Now, if the Egyptian church starts denying that Jesus was God because of something the Egyptian government is doing, well, I've got a way bigger problem with that. Because it's an essential doctrine. Not all partnership takes the same level of agreement. And here's the reality. What you probably want me to be doing is to walk you through all of what that looks like and doesn't look like. And we don't have time for that. Trust me. So I'm not telling you where the lines are. I'm just going to give you some principles to help draw those lines better in your own life. So not all Christian partnership has to look the same. Not everything requires the same level of agreement here's another truth the the source matters and it doesn't i know that's wildly unhelpful phrase it it matters but it also doesn't i want to know what the source is because i want to know what i should be looking out for but truth is truth like we talked about earlier I can quote from Gavin Ortland in this book and tell you that there are things about Gavin Ortland's theology that I don't agree with. There are things that he said in this book that I don't agree with. And I even told you to go read it. And hopefully we're training you in righteousness enough for you to be able to discern what is good against the word of God and what is not. If the standard has to be, I agree 100% with anyone I ever quote or do anything with, I'm in big trouble. Because there are very few people that I agree with. Like I said earlier, I probably can't quote Jamie Hart if I have to agree 100%. And I minister with the guy for 10 years virtually every day of the week. So the source matters. I want to know who they are. I want to understand because, look, if I know what Gavin Ortland believes about something, I can have that on my radar. So that if something comes up, I can... Yeah, I probably disagree with that because of this theological position, this passage. But we should be doing that with everything. So it matters and it doesn't because truth is truth regardless of who writes it. Association does not equal endorsement. Association does not equal endorsement. Look, my dollars pay for what my dollars pay for. I can't control what others do with the money they make. In fact, I'll take it a step further. Jamie talked about this a little bit uh, over the last couple of sermons, but I think we risk a theological error here if if we extend this too far. In fact, I think we risk potentially adding to the gospel if we make association equal endorsement. Because if Everything I potentially associate with makes me guilty of the sin that they are committing. We are now creating a doctrine of vicarious sin, where regardless of who sins, if I'm somehow loosely connected to them, I am in sin. That is not what Scripture teaches. There, it is true that I inherited a sin nature through Adam for all of eternity, so that is true, I have inherited the sin nature but the, the sin of other people on the planet at this time, I am not guilty of all those things. I'm guilty of plenty of my own. I don't need other people's. So if, if Mark Driscoll, which Jamie referenced, is, is guilty of bullying his church staff, and I quote one of Mark Driscoll's books or one of his sermons, I'm not guilty of bullying Mark Driscoll's staff, right? I can't be. If Pastor Jamie goes out and buys a Notre Dame hat, he's not guilty of supporting a false doctrine. He might be guilty of supporting a bad football team, but not a false doctrine. Again, go back to Philippians 1:18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This might step on some of your toes, but that's kind of, I guess, what I'm up here doing this morning. I can sing a song written by someone from a differing theological position if the truth of the words that I am singing are in line with Scripture. Why? Because God is the standard of truth and association does not equal endorsement. And... By the way, we'd like to make this specific issue new to us today. It was it isn't. Do a do a little church history lesson, and you'll see that most of church music written in the Middle Ages was written by classical artists who really didn't care about the church and just wanted to get their music out. Also, you can take the specific example of the hymn, It Is Well. Most of us would be like, we love that song, and I do, right? Let's sing it. Let's declare it. The song was written by a dude who eventually became a universalist and denied the doctrine of hell, which in my viewpoint says he was never a believer at all. So it was written by a guy who didn't even know the Lord. But it's true. Let's declare that truth. I'm all about it. Look, I can go on and on and on about this topic because it's near and dear to my heart. And if you want to, let's, let's grab lunch or coffee and let's do that. But the point is this. Christians have been wrestling with this stuff for the history of the church. It's not new and near to us and us alone. But we have to nuance. We have to work hard. We have to be willing to say it might be okay here, but not okay here. Like, I can sing a song written by the church at Hillsong, but I'm not going to their conference to be taught by their teachers, okay? I'm not, because they got some wackadoo theology. And trust me, I am intimately aware of what that is. Every new song that ever comes out that I hear from them, I am vetting through that lens. But there's levels of partnership here, and I can be okay with one and not okay with another. But that takes hard work. Because it'd be way easier to just say, they believe differently than I do. Let's just throw it out, all of it. But I don't think that's what we see in Philippians. I don't think that's what we see in the totality of the New Testament as we consider. All right, I've run way over, but you don't have the benefit of having another service come after you, so I just kept talking. But there is way more to nuance here. I'm giving you a point on nuance, and I could nuance and nuance and nuance and continue going. I could do a whole sermon series just on this one thing, but that's not the task I was given this morning. So what I have to do this morning is just trust that the Holy Spirit's going to work this out in our hearts. So let's pray and ask him to do that. God, I am fully aware on a morning like this morning with a, a task like this that... Um, I'm inadequate. I don't have the skill in and of myself to communicate this with enough clarity to convict and not offend and all of those sidesteps and ditches that you can fall into as a preacher. So I'm resting right now in the work of your spirit, and I'm trusting and praying that your spirit would work these truths out in the hearts of the people in this room right now. Because we desperately need you to help us understand your word. We desperately need you to help humble us to see your word with the right amount of accuracy in which we actually see it. Forgive us when we err on the side of pride, believing that we have it all together. It's the false lie of self-sufficiency that we don't need you and we don't need your spirit to help us understand. Forgive us of that. Convict us of that if we're not there because we all fall into these traps of believing we know more than we really do. Help us nuance well. Help us partner well because we want to see the gospel go forward. We want to see thousands come to know Jesus Christ through the ministry of the people in this room. God, I believe that you can do that. But we need to partner together with those in this room. We are going to need to partner with people outside of this room to see the truth of the gospel proclaimed in the way that it can be proclaimed. God, give us wisdom in that, what that looks like, how that happens. I don't have that all together, but we're going to trust you to lead and guide us in it. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You are loved.